Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called The Demarcation Problem of Truth Claims. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. Before we get too far into this, I do have a quick item of housework to do. Thank you all so much for listening, for commenting, liking, and sharing the podcast with friends and family. I am appreciative of all of the listeners. If this podcast is something that you enjoy and you are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. If you go to the ramiumptumruminations.org website, there is a box on the right-hand side of the page where you can donate to the podcast. Thank you so much for those listeners that have donated already and for those that are considering donating in the future. Your contributions are very important to me and they help the podcast keep running. Thank you so much. Now, on to the show. A quick background on this, we'll talk a little bit about a guy named Karl Popper and the demarcation problem. Now, there, there are some valid criticisms of the demarcation problem, but for our discussion today, I think that it's a valid way to look at religion and religious claims. So, here we go. The guy that we're going to talk about today, as I said, his name is Karl Popper. He was born in July of 1902. And he passed away in September of 1994. He was an Austrian-British philosopher and academic. And perhaps one of the most influential philosophers of the, of the last 100 years. So one of his major contributions that he made, and it's, um, it is a little bit controversial, but he went against the classic inductive way that science is performed. And he put forth his idea that is often uh, referred to as the demarcation problem or um, empirical falsification. There's a couple of ways that people talk about this. The basic idea of this, of this demarcation problem, is how you can determine what is science and what is not science. So it's, it's examining what the relationship between pseudoscience and science is. In his work, The Logic of Scientific Discovery, this is a quote uh, from Popper about this very problem. He said, the problem of finding a criterion which would enable us to distinguish between the empirical sciences on the one hand and the mathematical and logic as well as metaphysical systems on the other, I call the problem of demarcation. And the solution that Popper proposed for this is falsifiability, as opposed to verificationism. So he presented this with a simple way to understand what he was trying to go for. The example that he gives is that all swans are white. 
And the way that you would be able to falsify this is if you found a black swan. So this claim, according to Popper, would be a scientific claim because you could go and do the research to find something that contradicted it. Now, for the purposes of this discussion, we don't really need to go too far into some of the criticisms of this method, but I think it provides a, an excellent starting place to look at some of these items that people put on their shelves and the very reasons that the shelf is such an uncomfortable idea for so many people. Now, for those unfamiliar with the term the shelf, what that's referring to is a, a metaphor used by many people, both nuanced believers and ex-members of the church, for them to describe what they do with contradicting information that they learn while they were a believing member of the church. As an example, the church teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old, but when we look at the geological evidence, we get an estimate upwards of four and a half billion years old. When a believing member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is confronted with that contradiction, they're presented with the information that falsifies the claim that the church makes that the earth is only 6,000 years old. And this is precisely what happens for many people as they encounter more and more information that does not line up with the worldview presented to them by the church. So we could go through and list every single dogma and every single doctrine or teaching of the church and list them as things that are either falsifiable or not falsifiable. And anything that is not falsifiable requires a leap of faith in order to believe in it because there is no evidence for or against it. That's the idea of it being a falsifiable claim or a non-falsifiable claim. And according to Popper, that would put it in the category of metaphysics. As I said, we could go through a number of the truth claims, but I think it, I think it might be beneficial to look at some that Joseph Smith made. So the first vision is a claim that Joseph Smith saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. Well, depending on the version that you're reading, but we'll just go with the one that the church puts forward. It's this claim that Joseph Smith went into the grove, prayed, and saw God and Jesus. This is not a falsifiable claim. We don't have a way that we can go back in time and sit there in the grove and watch to see if it really happened or didn't happen. It's not something we can fal falsify. But you can make conclusions on whether this did in fact happen or not based on the milieu and some of the things that were happening around Joseph Smith, whether or not other people were making similar claims, whether or not there were different versions told. But again, it's not a falsifiable claim. The Joseph Smith claimed to have found golden plates and that they contain the record of the Nephites. Now, this could potentially be a falsifiable claim if he let anyone see them with their natural eyes, but he didn't. 
and the only ones that saw it saw it through through a cloth. So again, we're striking out. It's not a falsifiable claim. We have to have a leap of faith in order to believe in something like that. We could go through almost every single event of early church history. Almost every single one of these events falls into the category of non-falsifiable. So what I want to do is go through the articles of faith and determine which ones are falsifiable and which ones aren't. If there are any that we determine to be falsifiable, we can decide if they are true or not. So as we go through these, and I'm not going to read the whole list because I, I think many of us are familiar with them, but the majority of these truth claims in the Articles of Faith are not falsifiable claims. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, and, G- and Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. That's not a falsifiable claim. It's not falsifiable that they exist or don't exist. And I think that is important, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute here. And so most of these, as I said, aren't really falsifiable. They're just metaphysical or religious claims. It isn't until we get to Article of Faith 6 that we have our first falsifiable claim. And that is, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. The church claims that it has the same organization that Jesus Christ established when he was on the earth. And this is a falsifiable claim because if you study the life of Christ and if you study what is said in the New Testament, there is nothing in the New Testament that even remotely looks like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And to complicate matters further, Jesus Christ was born a Jew and died a Jew and never established a church. He did have followers and disciples, but they were not a distinct organization apart from Judaism. That happened later under the direction of Paul. We go down a few more before we hit any of, any of them that are falsifiable. I did an episode, an early episode, I think it was episode three or four, where I talked about Article of Faith 9, and that one is a falsifiable claim where we can see whether or not God reveals his will to prophets. And there are some really uncomfortable implications when you dig deep into that subject. Without going too far into it, the implication of the inconsistency of the teaching is that they don't have any greater access to deity than anyone else does. And then the last one that I think would be a falsifiable claim would be Article of Faith 12. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. And so to see if that's true or not, you would just observe the members of the church to see whether or not they follow the laws of the, of the lands in which they live. Now, why does that matter? Why, why is it important to see if something is falsifiable or not? For me, there is an example that many people throw out there of the spaghetti monster in the sky, but I like the original. The original one was a teapot. If we go too close to 
making fun of deities, I think it will offend some listeners. So I will stick to uh, the tea, the teapot in outer space example. And the reason I like this one is it illustrates why it's important to have a claim that's falsifiable. This analogy is often referred to as Russell's teapot. The philosopher Bertrand Russell from 1872, he was born in 1872 and passed away in 1970. He's talking about the burden of proof, and that is another way to describe this this concept of falsifiable and unfalsifiable claims. His example is this. He says, if he were to assert without any proof that there is a small teapot in outer space orbiting between Earth and Mars, but it's too small for you to see with, your, with a telescope, but that he knows that it's there and he knows that it exists. His assertion with this example is that it is unreasonable to expect anyone to believe his claim without any evidence, because it's a claim that cannot be proven wrong. The implication of this is that the majority of the, tr- of the truth claims in the Articles of Faith here are claims that cannot be proven wrong, and therefore require faith to believe in. You could even add a detail, and if you're giving this example to a friend or trying to think about it even further, let's say that, that I prayed and I know that this teapot exists, that it's orbiting the sun in between Earth and Mars. I know because I, ha- I feel that it exists. Just because I feel that it exists, or I think that it exists, does not mean that it exists. Now, I don't present this with the intention of saying that, that someone can't learn these things and still believe in Christianity or Mormonism. The point that I'm trying to put across is that it requires an extreme amount of faith for every single claim because these things are not falsifiable. A claim about the church that is falsifiable is the claim that the Book of Mormon is a historical document. Now, I do want to comment recently both Elder Bednar and President Russell M. Nelson made comments about the Book of Mormon not being historical documents. This is a side note, and I'll be quick. I, when I read that, and many other people read it and reacted to it on a, on a number of other forums, I didn't take it the same way that most people did. I don't think that the church is backing away from a stance that they believe it's a historical document. I think what they were trying to say and put forward was that it shouldn't be treated like a historical document, that it should be treated like a religious text and not studied for historical accuracy, but studied for religious or spiritual development. So that was my take on it. Whether or not I was right or not in in the way I interpreted their words, I may never know, but that's what I understood from them saying that comment. Regardless, back to the, 
So the, the Book of Mormon as a historical document is a falsifiable claim because we can go and we can look at the things in the text about what it says about the world at the time. And if the archaeological record matches up with that, then it would be a true claim. But if the archaeological record does not line up with what is presented in the Book of Mormon, then the claim can be falsified. The same thing goes with, with many of the stories in the Old Testament. These stories that, that make claims about the world, the flood, the creation, things such as that, they are falsifiable because we can go and look at the geological record and we can look at, at how things came together to see whether or not those stories are true or not. Before I end this episode, there's one more thing I want to say uh, to explain why this matters. Why does it matter that so many of these claims are presented without any way to falsify? If you could falsify them, then you could prove them right or wrong. Since you can't, these things are presented without any sort of evidence as to why this belief over that belief. And that right there is the key. They're presented without evidence. And the only method to obtain a knowledge of these is Moroni's promise as presented in the Book of Mormon. You have to pray, and if you get a good feeling, then you know it's true. Feelings do not count as evidence. The journalist and author Christopher Hitchens, he has um, an excellent epistemological way of describing what he does with claims like this. And this is often referred to as Hitchens' razor. And this is what he said. What can be asserted without evidence can also be dismissed without evidence. I tend to avoid beliefs, and I've referred to them as beliefs. So throughout my review of the recent general conference, I skipped almost entire talks that were just about beliefs because, in my mind, they were presenting these metaphysical religious beliefs that, that don't really have falsifiability. And since they don't have falsifiability, I couldn't ever prove them right or wrong. And neither could the, the speaker that's presenting them. They can't prove them right or wrong because there's no evidence for it. I don't like diving into debates along those lines. So with that understanding, these truth claims about the church, angelic visitations, the golden plates, the Urim and Thummim, the Hill Cumorah, Peter, James, and John restoring the, the priesthood, John the Baptist coming down, Elisha and Elijah coming down. <laughs> I say that in jest. All of these events and the beliefs that come from these things can neither be proven nor disproven. I'm going to go back to the first vision. And I'm going to reference the one that the church puts forward. In the first vision, Joseph Smith claimed to see God the Father and Jesus Christ. So he claimed to have evidence about the nature of God and evidence that God does exist. But since we have no way of falsifying a claim like that, going back through and, and finding out if it really happened or didn't happen, or even just the, 
the belief that goes along with this story, the belief that God has a body, how would we be able to falsify that? How could we test it if it's true or not? There's no way to falsify if these claims are true or not. And as Hitchens said, this sort of concept can be dismissed without evidence. All that to say, if someone learns all of, all of the tricky history and the uncomfortable past of the church, learns about the way the scriptures were put together and how they're a mix of historical documents and political documents and myth and legend, and still comes to the table and still has faith, that's their choice. The idea that I want to put forward to someone in that position is that it is a much more logical take to not make those leaps of faith. So when your family and friends decides not to believe anymore, don't think of them as, as fallen. They're thinking critically and they came to a different conclusion. What I'm trying to promote from an idea like that is trying to encourage more open discussion between a believer and a non-believer. I can't tell someone else what conclusions to make, especially on claims that don't have evidence. They're non-falsifiable. The phrase comes to mind <laughs> from the Watergate scandal. Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's going to be very hard to get it back in. I bring that up because for a person in this position like we're talking, someone who has learned the accurate history of the church, recognizes that there's problems throughout scripture and that there are some logical and moral inconsistencies with a belief in God, it's going to be very hard to get the toothpaste back in the tube. But there are people that try. This is what I wish the church made space for. I wish there was a space for people that know the accurate history to engage and look at this information and look at these stories with how they actually happened and still learn valuable lessons. You don't have to take them literally to learn from them. There's this space that exists for many of the nuanced members of the church, and, and physically in, mentally out, PIMO, if you will, those people know all of this stuff. And they don't have the blind faith that so many of the other members of the church have. I wish that there were a space for a believer like that within the walls of the church. Had there been, I might have stayed an active participating member for a lot longer. I don't think the church is ready for that sort of, uh, that sort of openness. I kind of took that in a different direction than I had originally intended. But the phrase that I quoted just a moment ago, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's going to be very hard to get it back in. For someone that chooses to believe, they are in this situation. So much of the toothpaste is out, and it's never going to get back in. But there are so many claims that can neither be proven nor disproven 
that the believer can choose to continue to hold faith in. The existence of God, the nature of God, and many of the other things that we've discussed throughout this episode. But the problem that nuanced members run into when they continue to go to church is that so many of these things that we'll continue with this analogy, so much of the toothpaste is already out and can't go back in. And so many of those things that a nuanced believer no longer believes are presented as factual and they're presented as truth with a capital T. And that makes it very hard for a nuanced believer to continue to attend and to continue to participate. If the church wants to maintain these members, they need to allow space for them to be able to openly talk about the difficult history. Because when we can have a a discussion about the mistakes of our ancestors in the past, we can work towards an apology. We can work towards healing. When we recognize that sometimes we're wrong, Sometimes we believe the wrong thing or make the wrong conclusions. If we can create a space in the church that recognizes that we're imperfect with a mentality like that, the organization can improve and heal an openness and an authenticity with a messy history. Sure, the church will lose members. I want it to be a better place and a safer place. And I think if they could adopt a mentality like this. The toothpaste is never going to go back in for the nuanced members. It never will. And so they have to spend the rest of their lives attending church while actively disagreeing with many things that are said over the pulpit. It's not an easy way to participate in the church. Thank you so much for listening today. I appreciate all of the listeners. I appreciate the kind words that I've received and the reviews and the comments. You guys are awesome. I don't care what your families say about you for having left the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I still think you're pretty cool. (laughs) Sorry, was that terrible? That might have been terrible. (laughs) Uh, As I said at the outset, um, I do have a donation box on the website. I won't promote it more than once a month. I don't want that to be a focus of what I talk about, but it is there. If this podcast is helpful to you and if you are financially able, I would greatly appreciate any donations that you can afford. Become a monthly monthly donor or a one-time donor. Anything you could do is greatly appreciated. Thank you for stopping by to listen today. I hope this made your commute enjoyable or doing the dishes or whatever you were working on while you listened. I hope that you have an excellent day.